This is Speaking Z Theology with Chris Green. Good evening. It's good to be here. Thanks for coming out. This is obviously a difficult topic. It's a difficult topic to know how to begin. So I've scripted just the first part of the lecture. And I won't read all of it. I, I haven't written all of it. Just as a way in, I'm going to start with what I wrote this afternoon. What I have to give tonight is not a lecture, but something more like fragments of what might have been a lecture. The image that comes to me is not a single fire around which we can all gather, but candles placed around a room. So that is what I want to do tonight, place some candles around the room. My thoughts will be hesitant. How could they not be? Theology, if it is worth its salt, is necessarily unfinished. Any theology that claims to be finished is not about the infinite God, the eternal God. Theology has to remain unfinished. There's always more to say, and everything can be said differently. That's especially true of a theology of suffering, and even more especially true of a theology of the suffering of God. That's what I'm trying to take up tonight. Still, in light of all of these considerations, I do believe that even in the light of these candles we're going to light tonight, we can see the wounds of Christ clearly enough. And that is the title for the lecture, The Wounds of God, A Theology of Trauma. So here's the question that I put to myself, I don't know when for the first time, and I don't know exactly in what form it came to me first, but over the months and years that I've been wrestling with this, it has honed itself to this shape. This is the question, and this is what we're going to be considering tonight. If trauma is the wound that does not heal, if trauma is the wound that does not heal, and this is a pretty common definition or description of trauma, you'll hear more of that tonight as, as we go. The harm which we do not get past or put behind us, the injury that continues to hurt. And if Christian theology is the beginning of prayer to the God who has been wounded, then what must the theology of trauma say? Let me ask it again. If, if trauma is the wound that does not heal, and if theology is the beginning of prayer to the God who has been wounded, and yet is a healer, what does a theology of trauma say? What does it say about suffering and survival? What does it say about witness and intercession? What does it say about retribution and healing? I've been thinking about that question for a long, long time. I've been thinking about that question longer than I realized I was thinking about it. But I have not a lot to say yet, comparatively speaking. And everything I do have to say is only the beginning of a beginning of an answer to that question. It is a beginning, though, and I do feel we have to make a beginning. I have responsibilities. I have responsibilities as a pastor, as a theologian, as a survivor, as a witness, and as a neighbor. I have responsibilities. And so something has to be said, even if it's just the beginning of a beginning. 
In a review of Shelley Rambo's Spirit and Trauma, A Theology of Remaining, which is one of the core texts in the study of theological study of trauma, Asona said this, post-traumatic survival desperately needs Christian theological reflection. Traumatic violence is pervasive, and she gives examples, those who've suffered sexual abuse, war veterans, victims of, of violence in neighborhoods, and so on. And that is the DSM definition of trauma, the narrower definition of trauma. People who've had either died or had near-death experiences, suffered the death of their loved ones in traumatic ways, been through war, or suffered other severe injury. But there are, of course, also broader, more expansive definitions of trauma, too, those who are near to those kinds of suffering. Because of the nature of trauma, because of the nature of trauma, this tends to be, those who continue to suffer from it tend not to be able to speak about it. Therefore, it is difficult to calculate exactly how many people are affected. That's one of the problems we're up against. But it is clear that it is a sizable portion of our population. So even if you take the narrower definition of trauma and you think, and you stay with the narrower, smaller portion size of the research, you're still talking about a high number of people, incredibly high number of people. And of course, all of the people in their lives who are participating with them. Right? So even if in, this, in a room like this, I would be willing to bet every single one of you is either suffered trauma or knows someone well who has, and you're either living with it yourself or you're living with them while they live with it. You're either a survivor or you're on your way to being a survivor, or you're a witness. And so, unfortunately, we have to talk about it, and we have to talk about it as Christians. We have to find ways to, t- to talk about it in light of the gospel. That's what I'm trying to do. And Julia goes on. If that isn't reason enough, the fact that we're all touched by it, if that isn't reason enough, consider that Christianity has its origins in trauma. And we often forget this. The followers of Jesus experience the violent torture and death of their teacher. Mary, above all, watching what happens to her son. I mean, she's told right at the beginning, a sword will pierce your heart also. The gospel begins in trauma. So how could we not speak the gospel to those who have been traumatized and those who are bearing witness? So I'm going to completely out of keeping with what's written here, or out of the order at least, light some candles. A candle for different people who've affected the way that I think about trauma. And they have affected me in various ways. Some of them have affected me as I've wrestled with my own trauma, or as I've stood with those who are. Some of them have affected my theology. Some of them have affected my prayer. Some of them have moved me to see myself or to see others differently. But all of these people that I'm about to to share with you, like these candles in memory of, or in honor of, all of them have been vital to me in my attempts to start to think and bring to speech what it is I think God has to say about our suffering and how God says it by showing us his. What God has to say about our suffering is done by how God suffers and how God shows us his suffering. 
So I'm going to start with Henry Nouwen. So this first candle is a candle for Henry Nouwen. I recently read, just this summer, Henry, Henry, Henry Nouwen's Letters on the Spiritual Life. By the way, one of the things you'll notice, those of you who've had class with me before, talking about this topic changes the way that I talk. That's not an affectation on my part. This is difficult, and I'm trying to be sensitive to that, but also my brain functions differently when I talk about this topic. And that's true not just on this side of the stroke, although that's also changed the dynamics. It's, it's a witness to the ways in which talking about this is, I have skin in the game. Right? This is not talking about something that's at an arm's length from me. I'm talking about my own life. I'm talking about my own story. And that means that my speech stumbles more than, more than normal. But I'm not embarrassed by that. I've gotten past that embarrassment anyway. Because I think it's fitting to talk about trauma in ways that bear witness to that. But I'm still talking. I may be limping, but I'm still walking. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. Thank you. I appreciate that. I get one pass. I won't do it again. So Henry Nouwen's Letters of the Spiritual Life. I, I, I was, of, of course, alert to what he was going to say about suffering because I know Henry Nouwen's story. I hope all of you do. And I was expecting to find quite a bit about it. But even so, having read a number, I mean, Nouwen wrote, I think, 39 or 40 books. So I've read a few of them. I have not read all 40. Sorry about that, Henry. I know he's with the Lord now, so he can forgive me. And hundreds, hundreds of articles and essays. But I had never read his letters before. Have any of you read the letters? Anybody? Highly recommend. Can't recommend them too much. I learned from the preface of this book that he, in the course of his life, received almost 20,000 letters that he kept. And he received postcards, faxes. Do you guys remember faxes? And then, you know, old school letters. And... He answered every single one of them. He answered every single one of them. This was a, it turns out this was a major part of his day, was responding to his correspondence, corresponding with people who were sending letters to him. This particular book is just a, a collection of what is called the spiritual letters, so they're focused on themes. I'm going to read you three, or pieces of three letters the first one is from August 11th, 1981, and it's in response to Richard. Thanks for your very challenging letter of July 15th. It is not easy for me to respond satisfactorily since you raised so many important and sensitive issues, but let me just share with you some reflections. Over the last few years, I've been increasingly aware that true healing mostly takes place through the sharing of weakness. Mostly we are so afraid of our weaknesses that we hide them at all cost and, muck, and, and thus make them unavailable to others, but also often to ourselves. And in this way, we end up living double lives, even against our own desires. And so he goes on in the letter for a bit to talk about how a double life affects us and how God begins to draw us together, to draw us back to ourselves. Same letter, I'll pick it up a little later. It is amazing in my own life that true friendship and community become possible to the degree that I am able to share my weaknesses. 
Often I, became, I have become aware of the fact that in the sharing of my weaknesses with others, the real depths of my human brokenness and weakness and sinfulness started to reveal itself to me. Not as a source of despair, but as a source of hope. As long as I try to convince myself or others of my independence, a lot of my energy is investing, building up my own false self. But once I'm able to truly confess my most profound dependence on others and on God, I can come in touch with my true self and a real community can develop. All of this I'm saying to restate my conviction that often deepening the pain is the way to healing. Deepening the pain is the way to healing because deepening the pain means going to that place in me where I am really broken, sinful, dependent, where I'm no longer trying to stay in control, but where I can reach out to God and to my neighbor without fear. That's the first letter. Here's the second one. From 1988, October 31st. He's responding to a friend who had written an article about his theology. And it's, again, all worth reading, but I'm going to skip right to the heart of the letter. She's, she has made a claim about his wounded healer. And I, I know you've all at least heard that term. And many of you will have read the book or parts of the book. So she had written comparing his work to, to someone else, someone else's, and she had written a section on his book on the wounded healer. And as you'll hear, she got it wrong. And so they're friends, and he's friendly, but he's gently correcting her misreading. This is what he said. On page 10, you wrote, Now one would agree that we minister best out of our needs and wants. This is incorrect. It does not really represent my thinking. Now, listen to that again. Now one would agree we minister best out of our needs and our wants. I want one thing, just to insert this before I keep reading, one thing that I've found across all theological discussion is that we tend to settle for the first seemingly insightful thing that's said. Like if we hear something that seems insightful, that's usually enough. And I often encourage students to always push past that first insight and see what's, what's, what's down below that. So it's, it's easy to read a, a, an article talking about suffering and trauma and healing and faith and to read a line like, now one would agree we minister best out of our needs and our wants. And that seems true enough. That seems true enough. But if you really want to see, if you really want to understand You've got to push past anything like that. Even though it's somewhat true, we have to bring the nuance to speech. We have to find ways to say, not quite, not quite. And so now and does. That's not really what I'm saying. My opinion, he says, is not that we minister best out of our needs and wounds, but that we minister best when we have recognized our needs and attended to our wounds. Do you hear that difference? Not out of our wounds, but when we're aware of and having our wounds cared for, then we are better ministers. When we know we've been wounded and we're in care for healing, then we're better healers. Not when we bleed on people. Not when we expect them to be our healers. But when we know that we need a healer 
and that we're with the healers, then we can speak healingly. Our needs and wounds can only be a source of our ministry when they have been acknowledged and given appropriate attention. And again, notice he keeps saying two things. Not just acknowledged, cared for. It is important that you name them. But you also have to have somebody who knows what to do with them and how to help you live with them, live through them. When we would minister to others out of our own needs and wounds, we harm them. Wounds are infectious. They spread infection. And this is one of the reasons we, we, I just taught a doctor ministry class earlier this week. I encourage the students to make a clean difference between transparency and vulnerability. There have to be people in your life with whom you can be vulnerable. But when you're showing your wounds, that's what vulnerability means, you need to be showing it to someone who's clean and knows how to keep your wound clean. You can be transparent with quite a few people. Sometimes you need to be guarded with people. And you've got to know when to be vulnerable and with whom. And very rarely expose yourself. So I, I told them, you know, you're, there's, there are very few people in your life in whom you could be fully exposed. There are not many people, and they have to be the right people with whom you can be vulnerable. With most people, you can be at least somewhat transparent. And with some people you're going to need to be guarded. That's what Nouwen's describing, right? That's what Nouwen is, is naming. We, it is very important for us to recognize how our needs and wounds can be a great source of our suffering and call us to an ever fuller surrender to God's first love, the love that can fulfill all our needs and heal all our wounds. So notice, now, and I'll point to some others as we go along, Nouwen says, heal all our wounds. Some would say trauma is the wound that does not heal. Now, now and says, God heals all our wounds. As long as our needs are raw and our wounds are open, we will inflict wounds on others and create needs in others without realizing it. What? That's an astounding line. We create needs in others without realizing it. One more letter from now on. This is the first candle. This was actually given as a letter to the conference, 1991 conference of the Free Methodist Church. They had invited him to come and speak, and he wasn't able to make it. He was in Germany and couldn't make it to the conference. So he sent him this letter. And again, it's astounding insight. There was a time when I really wanted to help the poor. And by the way, I'm jumping into the middle of the letter. This is not the beginning. There was a time when I really wanted to help the poor, the sick, and the broken but to do it as one who was wealthy, healthy, and strong. Now I see more and more how it is precisely through my weakness and my brokenness that I minister to others. I am increasingly aware of the fact that Jesus does not say, blessed are those who help the poor. He says, blessed are the poor. For me, this means that I have to come in touch with my own poverty to discover there the blessings of God and to minister from that place to others. It is only as the blessed ones that we can be a blessing, and I pray that we all dare to claim the blessing that rests in our poverty, our weakness, our not-togetherness, 
and that we can proclaim to others that where they are broken and in great need, the voice of God's love can be heard. It is clear we need to heal. We need to protest against violence and injustice. We have to do anything possible to avoid oppression, exploitation, war. But this ministry of healing has to be a ministry in the name of the one who healed through his wounds and who revealed his healing presence as the crucified one, who took the marks of his crucifixion into his new life with God. So that I pray, I pray you embrace your own weakness and your own suffering and your own pain with trust that in this way you can follow your Lord and make your own wounds a source of healing for others. The second candle. Not all these candles are the same size or burn with the same brightness, by the way, just in case you're anxious that we're going to be here all night. And there are five candles. So the second is a candle for Nick Cave. On his blog, Redhead, Red Hand Files, which he launched in 2018, Nick Cave, who's an Australian rock star, singer, songwriter, actor, artist, philosopher, he was, and also friend of Rowan Williams lately, is, he responds to fan questions. Any of you ever seen Red Hand Files before? Anybody know Nick Cave? Guys, you got a lot, at least one of you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Robbie. Um, I'm gonna get, you're getting all kinds of suggestions tonight. I would suggest starting with the Nick Cave of the last five years. Like, maybe don't go back further than that. If you do, I'm not responsible for it. In 2022, his oldest son, Jethro, who had been diagnosed long before with schizophrenia, died at age 31 just after he had been released from custody. He had been in custody yet again, came out, and died shortly thereafter, substance abuse. 31 years old. He was the second of Nick Cave's sons to die. Seven years before that, Cave's son, Arthur, who's one of, uh, he had a twin brother. Arthur was 15 years old. He was climbing and fell to his death. And on his blog, fans started to raise questions to him about his grief. And he started answering. And it generated this incredible openness of conversation, which led to a book, which I highly recommend, and to interviews, I think, with four archbishops at this point. And he's become nothing less than a prophetic voice about the church and the gospel and healing and the holiness of grief through all of this. Listen to what he says. This most recent response, I, I could have picked, I mean, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of them. I just took the most recent one that came out, I think, three days ago. It was written by a woman named Antoinette who's, who lives in New Orleans, and her daughter was killed last December. And she doesn't say how. So the letter gets posted with the name of the person and where they're from without edits, and he responds. I won't read his entire response, but you do need to hear some of this. Your letter powerfully embodies the extreme disorder that churns around a parent who has lost a child. I don't know the circumstances of your daughter's death, but I can sense your rage at the injustice of it. I can also relate to the tremendous love you feel toward the world, regardless of your grief or because of it. 
Now, one of the things that marks cave out as wise is that he's able to say a lot of things at once. He can hold a lot together. A mark of foolishness, even sophisticated foolishness, is that we play one note, not chords. He doesn't simply say, I understand your rage, and we can understand her rage. And he doesn't say, I can understand your love for the world. He says both. And then again, augments that chord. I can understand both your rage and your delight in the world, your tremendous love for it. Perhaps in spite of your grief, he says, or is it because of your grief? Do you hear the complexity of that note, those notes? Is it grief that's making her love the world, or is it her love of the world that's causing the grief, and how does the rage factor? That's how we have to talk if we want to talk truthfully. A parent should never have to bury their child. It makes no sense. It sits outside the natural order of things. Yet here we are, you and me, living with these ghastly vacuums, ghastly vacuums left behind by those we have lost. I love your honesty in laying bare the biblical-sized fury we feel toward a world that has the audacity to keep on turning regardless of our suffering. How dare the world be so beautiful, we think. These are the divergent feelings of of grief. And then listen to this, two more paragraphs from him. Your righteous defiance will be so helpful. Your righteous defiance. Your righteous defiance will be so helpful to the many grieving parents who have tragically turned this anger upon themselves. And there you hear the compassion, a compassion born of his own temptations. I love your sentence. I believe it's, and this is one of the things she had written, I believe it's our turn whether we want it or not. Gone are the days of sitting on the sidelines. I'm going to go try and figure it out. Now, what had triggered her letter is that he had an interview about grief on the news she had seen and then was provoked to write him this letter about what she was going to do. I'm not sitting on the sidelines anymore. So he quotes that to her. For it is true, those who grieve know they can apprehend the truth of the world because they have been as close to the great mystery as it is possible to be. Grief takes us into the holy. Grief takes us into the holy. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Someone said that. We understand in our blood and in the blood of our children that we are defenseless against the vagaries of the world, but that we all have the capacity for extraordinary resilience, especially when it is toughened in the furnace of our rage. Be angry. Sin not. Be angry. We come to understand that rage and compassion are not opposites, but manifestations of the same impulse to change the world. The Jesus who touches the leper and the Jesus who drives the money changers out of the temple is one Lord, moved by one love. And then this last paragraph, which is going to make me weep, it has every time I've read it. Antoinette, you have every right to be a mess. But let me say this, don't be a mess all the time. Because this planet needs people like you. 
We need fierce souls with flaming swords that lay open the world to the truth of things. Our perilous and impermanent mutuality, our ferocious resilience, and our acute and heartbreaking preciousness. I love you for that. Nick. Third candle, Ray Minicon. A candle for Ray Minicon. Ray Minicon is an Aboriginal pastor, Anglican pastor with roots in the tribes of Queensland, the Aboriginal tribes, the Goring Goring tribes, and Kabi Kabi tribes. He lives in Sydney, and his life has been dedicated to primarily to the work of standing with and speaking up for the stolen generations. From the late 1800s until the 1970s, Aboriginal children in Australia were forcibly removed from their families by government agencies and church missions, Anglican church missions too, in an attempt to assimilate them into culture of white Australia. Ray Minicon wrote this piece. He, he leads, or is part of leading what's called the Forgiveness Project. And I'm not going to read it all. Again, if you're interested, I'm happy to send you all these links at some point. He starts the, the, the talk by describing his childhood, his father, who was, a, who was a Christian leader. By the way, strikingly, astonishingly, Amongst the Aboriginal peoples of Australia, more than 75% are Christian. In spite of the fact that it's Christians for whom they, to whom they owe most of their suffering. He talks about the Aboriginal Protection Acts, which of course did not protect the indigenous peoples at all. And he names the ways in which his life was shaped by his father's struggles with those oppressions. And so I'm going to pick up his talk right at that point. My parents were also struggling with these issues, but what kept them together was my father's incredible faith. And eventually I felt the call to follow in his footsteps and leave behind the drugs I was enjoying. I was so enjoying. I knew I had to draw back into his faith to find a different direction for my life. That's when I became politically activated. I did eight years of studying, which gave me access to the records and stories of my people. I learned about injustices that none of my community knew about because we hadn't had access to newspapers. We were blinded to the cruel actions of the government, which had been implemented with impunity. Many times I've witnessed a white Australian ask a stolen generation member for their forgiveness. Listen to this. Many times I've witnessed a white Australian ask a stolen generation's member, a child that was taken from its family, for forgiveness. And the stolen generation person will then look them straight in the eye and say, you can't apologize if you aren't directly responsible. You can't apologize if you're not directly responsible. The government knew what they were doing. They are the guilty ones. There was an apology in a sense. 
Kevin Rudd, the Australian Prime Minister in 2008, apologized on behalf of all Australians following a national sorry moment. Movement, sorry, movement. Whilst many of the promises the government made have not been implemented, it pricked the conscience of a nation, and it was a turning point. When someone says, I'm sorry, something changes in your spirit. But then listen to this. Healing is a meaningless word for Aboriginal people because we possess a wound that cannot be healed. Right? And now I want you to see the shadows in the room. Henry Nouwen says God heals all wounds. And Ray Minicon says we have a wound that cannot be healed. One of the formative experiences of my life, and there are many of course, many more than I know, It was a sermon I heard, not even a sermon. It was a line from a sermon I heard when I was a little boy, no more than eight or nine. He was a a missionary from Haiti, and he was reporting on his work. He'd come to our church in Oklahoma to talk to us about his mission. And he read the psalm, I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. And then he said, obviously the psalmist had never been to Haiti. That's what Minicon is saying. There are wounds that cannot be healed. Rape of the soul is profound, particularly for the stolen generations who were forcibly removed from their parents, communities, and culture. You can't band-aid that. For these people, the concept of healing and the concept of forgiveness is difficult. Now notice, he's adjusting. We possess a wound that cannot be healed. The concept is difficult. Reconciliation only happens when you're restored in your spirit. That's why we prefer to talk about emotional, psychological well-being. If you fix the psyche and restore well-being through a process of reconnection and reconstruction, then you have a platform for someone to deal with intergenerational pain and be a human being again. Only then can someone have an opportunity to receive or express forgiveness. Forgiveness waits on restoration, at least sometimes. I struggle with forgiveness, he says, but I practice it every day. I have to relieve my bitterness. It's a moment-by-moment thing because I can walk into shop and have a person do racist acts without even knowing they're racist. And when that happens... I have to walk away and deal with my rage, it's that word again, and anger and learn to say, okay, Ray, forgive that person. Do you hear what Nowen said about what trauma does to us? It separates us. You hear what Ray is doing? He's talking to himself. Okay, Ray, this is what we're going to do. He's talking to himself with the words of Jesus. And that's how you reconcile yourself. Partner up, say to yourself what Jesus says to you until you're one again. And then he says this, this is the last line of the talk. If I didn't forgive, then the past would always be present. If I didn't forgive, then the past would always be present. And I'll add this. One, there are lots of dimensions to forgiveness, but one of them is forgiving people in the sense that you put them in the care of God and 
away from your own responsibility. Now, what Minicon is suggesting here is that if you hurt me now and I forgive you and it goes into my past, now you're there with God. Now you're there with God. And I'm letting God handle. I'm letting God handle what I can't handle. Sometimes that's what forgiveness needs to be. Fourth candle. And this is another aboriginal theologian, educator, activist, Miriam Rose Ungenmir Bauman, Dr. Miriam Rose Ungenmir Bauman. She just, I don't know, was it last year or year before, she was invited to the Vatican to meet with Pope Francis and to celebrate the Mass commemorating the 50th anniversary of the first Aboriginal liturgy in the Catholic Church, you know, Aboriginal Australian liturgy. She, is, she refers to herself as a custodian of tradition, of her own people's tradition. And she says she walks in two worlds, the world of the white man and the world of her people. There's a, she did an interview that I saw when she was in Rome. I mean, the, the Vatican newspaper and all, of course, all the papers in Rome were interviewing her. And she made this comment. It was so, so astounding. So they were asking, she's brilliant. She's an artist, by the way. That's her piece. I'll talk about it later. And re, re, stunning person, just a stunning person. But she, she said almost offhandedly, she said, it's hard for me to be here. She's, she's in Rome, and she's like, there are lots of buildings and cars, but I'm willing to do this because I want them to know my people. So these are her words. It's a talk she get on, on the wisdom of her tradition, the wisdom of what she knows as an Aboriginal person. It's an astounding piece. And... She uses the Aboriginal word for it, dadadi, which is silence, listening, attention. It's a kind of awareness. She said it's something like what you in English call contemplation. And this is what she says about it. A big part of dadadi is listening. There is no need of words. Through the years, we have listened to our stories. They are told and sung over and over as the seasons go by. Today, we still gather around the campfires, and together we hear the sacred stories. As we grow older, we become the storytellers. We pass on to the young all they need to know. The stories and songs seek deep into our minds, and we hold them inside. In the ceremonies, we celebrate the awareness of our lives as sacred the contemplative way spreads over our whole life. It renews us and brings us peace. In our Aboriginal way, we learn to listen from our earliest days. We could not live good, useful lives unless we listened. This was the way to learn, not by asking questions. We learn by watching, by listening, by waiting, then acting. Our people have passed on this way of listening for over 40,000 years. There's no need to reflect too much or to do a lot of thinking. It's just about being aware. 
My people are not threatened by silence. They are completely at home in it. They have lived for thousands of years with nature's quiet. My people today recognize and experience in this quietness the great life-giving spirit, the father of us all. And then she goes and talks beautifully about her experience of God. But I have to, there's too much here for me to share tonight. But then she comes back after talking about her, her experience of God's presence to talk about waiting and waiting for God. We wait on God too. His time is the right time. We wait for him to make his word clear. We don't worry. We know that in time and in the spirit of Dada'i, that deep listening and quiet stillness, his way will be clear. We are river people. We cannot hurry the river. We have to move with its current and understand its ways. We hope that the people of Australia will wait, not so much waiting for us to catch up, but waiting with us as we find our pace in this world. There is much pain and struggle as we wait. The Holy Father, she's talking about the Pope. Pope John Paul II wrote an encyclical to and about the Aboriginal Australian people, and in it he said this, which he said he learned from an Aboriginal man. Look, when he was in Australia, he learned this from an Aboriginal elder. If you stay closely united as a people, you are like a tree in the middle of a bushfire, sweeping through the timber. The leaves are scorched, and the tough bark is scarred. But inside the tree, the sap is still flowing. And under the ground, the roots are still strong. The sap is still flowing. The roots are still strong. One more candle, and then we'll talk about the wounds of Christ, and I'll be done. This is a candle for Alma Doring. Alma Doring was a Mennonite preacher and missionary to the Congo who, in the early 1900s, preached often in Pentecostal circles. I stumbled onto her because of my research on early Pentecostal history. And it took me a while to track down her, her story. I've, tragically, I found out later that as the Pentecostal denominations formed, she was forced out because she was not considered as a speaker, she was forced out because she wasn't a, an insider. So there were at least one or two denominations that officially disinvited her from preaching, which is tragic. But this is the sermon, or the bits of this sermon that I'm going to share with you, was given at a Pentecostal convention in 1913 at the church in Sunderland, England, Alexander Body's church, Smith Wigglesworth's church, where she preached about the cross. And I want you to listen to what she said. And this, this last candle will move us to talking about the wounds of Jesus. She opens the sermon by saying, I'm so glad that the Spirit led dear Mrs. Body. Mrs. Body is the vicar's wife. She had preached that morning. And now another woman, a Mennonite, is stepping up. So you have an Anglican 
vicar's wife preached in the morning, and now a Mennonite is preaching. This is the Pentecostal convention. Let those who have ears hear. And she's going to preach about the cross. And then she says this, wherever we speak of the cross, the hallelujahs seem to cease. We don't hear people saying glory to God when we speak of the baptism of the Holy Ghost as the baptism of suffering. People are longing and thirsting to do great things. But oh, beloved, when it means really to experience the cross in our daily lives, people are afraid. I have many a time noticed that as God has given us special revelations of Calvary and we've brought them to the people, you would think we were having a funeral service. They are afraid of the cross. They are afraid of Calvary, afraid of death because they don't know the glory of it. They don't know the glory of it. I would like to say something about two crosses. One is in Mark 8:34. Whoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But Christ speaks of another. He says, are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And Paul says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so whether she knows it or not, and I assume she does, Alma Doring takes up this theme that runs all the way through the Christian tradition about the two crosses. There's your cross that you're to take up every day, and there's his cross that you glory in. You take up your cross, you glory in his. And so that's her sermon. You'll hear it. How often when I'm dealing with souls, they say to me, oh, sister, my cross is so heavy. And I say, what is your cross? And they say, I don't get along well. There are differences in my family. Another one says, the cold hand of death has hindered our home. That is my cross. Another speaks of loneliness. I am not loved, they say. I am not appreciated. They don't recognize my gifts. That is my cross. But beloved, if you knew it, if you could see up in the heavenlies, if you could get a mountaintop view of it, if you could see it as God sees it, you would glory in these things. I remember the first time I spent with the natives of Central Africa. I had not learned the language. Here I was, a young worker sent out amongst people whose language I could not understand or speak. It was lonely. We have our mission stations about 10 days apart. Not to understand any of the conversation was a loneliness I had not been accustomed to. And I remember how many times I would be in my room with tears flowing down my cheeks and I would say, oh Lord, an hour of fellowship with one person. I thought it was a cross. It was my cross. And beloved, God kept me till it ceased to be a cross at all. Did you hear that? It was my cross. God kept me until it ceased to be a cross at all. It was in those moments of absolute isolation that my soul was enriched. The mail came every three weeks and they were two months behind in reaching me. My dear mother had been dead for two months before the news came. And I had no one to speak to me. But what happened? The cross bore me to the heart of Jesus. I learned to know him. I learned to discuss little details in the kitchen with him. 
I was the housekeeper. I learned to talk to him about everything. There was nothing too trivial. Why? Because I had nothing else to do and no one else to tell it to. And that cross bore me right into communion with Jesus. The whole sermon is incredible. I'm not going to read it all. But again, I assume she knows this, that when she talks about the cross as a means of travel, as as a vehicle, she's picking up ancient, ancient Christian wisdom, that the cross is a bridge or a ladder, that is a, a means to bring us to God. Listen to this. This is from Ephraim the Syrian, hymn 17. He left the highest and became a companion to the lowest. He left those found and sought the lost. He left the crafty and chose the simple. Through them, he spread his gospel to everyone. The chariot of the four living creatures he left and came down and made the cross a vehicle to the corners, to the four corners of the earth. And that's what Alma Doreen experienced. To live with her suffering until her suffering carried her into the sufferings of Jesus, at which point her sufferings were something else. They couldn't have been otherwise. Not just that she saw them differently, they were something else. So those are the candles. Let's talk about the wounds of Jesus and I'll, I'll be done. Jeremiah, as you all know, is called the weeping prophet for a reason. Ricky Moore, who's a dear friend of ours and a mentor for both Robbie and for me, refers to him as the prophet of lost causes. Prophet of lost causes. He dies in Egypt, prophecies unfulfilled. Lives a long, hard life and has to drink the disappointment over and over and over again. This passage, I'm going to read you two passages. The first is from Jeremiah 30. And then from Lamentations 1. And I want you to hear, I've been drawing, trying to draw attention to this over and over tonight, the ways in which these wise people, whether we're talking about Miriam Rose or Ray or Nick or Alma or Henry, every one of them, they talk with nuance. They say a lot of things at once. They don't play single notes. They play complex chords. They change the rhythm. They say things like, healing is not possible. Healing is difficult. I have to forgive every day. They, they layer what they say. Wisdom has depth. Wisdom has texture. It's not flat and smooth. It's not... I won't say that. It's not that thing I was thinking that I'm not going to say out loud. So Jeremiah has that same depth of of that same texture, that same density. This is what he said, Jeremiah 30. On that day, says the Lord of hosts, verse 8, I will break his yoke from off your neck. I will burst your bonds and strangers shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them. But as for you, 
Have no fear, my servant Jacob, says the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for I am going to save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and no one shall make him afraid. No one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. I will make an end of all the nations among which I scattered you, but of you I will not make an end. I will chastise you. I will by no means leave you unpunished in just measure. All of that, incredibly hopeful. Do not be afraid. And in the same breath, Jeremiah says this, for thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable, your wound grievous. Your hurt is incurable. There is no one to uphold your cause There is no medicine for your wound. There is no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are numerous. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Your guilt is great. Your sins are so numerous. Because of these things, I have done this to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. Not sure how that follows, Jeremiah. All your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered. All who prey on you, I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal. We cannot know what we're hearing until we hear a God who says, your wounds are incurable and your wounds I will heal because they have called you an outcast. That's God's motive, Jeremiah says. Why does God heal what can't be healed? Because they mocked you. Because they left you. He doesn't leave anyone behind. Now, Lamentations. I was going to say you didn't expect a Lamentations reference tonight, but it was a lecture on trauma. You probably did expect Lamentations tonight. Is it nothing to you? This is the opening meditation. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see. If there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his anger, is there any sorrow like my sorrow? I draw attention to these two passages because those two passages are central to Christian tradition and traditional Christian theology and thinking about the wounds of Jesus. So there are, and I'm almost done. We'll open it up for Q&A in just a couple minutes. There are five wounds of Jesus in his glorified body. And the fact is, before he died, he was covered with wounds from head to toe. He's covered with wounds. And the church fathers pointed this often, that he is like Job, who said, my entire body is wounded from head to foot. Jesus, think of the, the lashes the crown of thorns, the beating. 
The body of the man that was put into the tomb was a body lacerated and bruised, front and back, head to toe. But when he's resurrected, those wounds are gone. Five wounds have been glorified. His side, his hands, his feet. Not the bruising, not the lashes. Five wounds. And all of the tradition, the theologians of tradition, want to know why. Why not all of the wounds? Why these five? And the argument is because they're signs. They're signs of what he's done, what his death means, what his life means, who did it, all of that. But in the heart of it, and listen to this, in the heart of it, there is a call to find our place in his wounds. And so I want to read to you this, and then, Robbie, I'll open it up to you. This is from a sermon by Hans Urs von Balthasar. That's a sermon he preached on Epiphany. By being a tiny child, God is saying this. With all my almighty power, genuinely mine as it is, I am still as poor and humble and trusting as this child. Indeed, not just as this child, for I really am this child. Later in his teaching, Jesus will speak about taking the lowest place, about serving, about giving one's life for the brothers. And this will not be a mere moral instruction, but something he does, something he is. It will be a manifestation of the heart of God, his father. Do this, because this is what God is like. And then comes the terrible side. When Jesus suffers for sinners and carrying their sins, loses his awareness of his father and cries out, forsaken and dying of his thirst for God, Again, we have to say, this is what God is like. And when Jesus shares himself out in the form of food and drink, we have to say, this is what God is like. For it is the Father who offers us this word and flesh of God, bloodied, rent, and torn asunder, that we may share in his life. In an earlier sermon for New Year's, he said this, of course, there is a great mystery at the heart of this idea, the vicarious suffering of Jesus on the cross. There we see that it was possible for someone to take on himself our guilt and hence the fundamental cause of our sadness and hopelessness. And by doing that, opening up for us the path to unreserved joy. The Old Testament tells of Samson, how one night he lifted the gates of the city of Gaza from their hinges and carried them off. So in the night when he was forsaken by God, Jesus unhinged the far more heavily bolted gates of hell and on Easter morning set us free to walk down the path into God's broad land. But at the same time, he also enabled us to walk along with him on the path of his sufferings. Paul drew the consequences. In my flesh, I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Christian suffering is fruitful. Christian, Christian suffering is fruitful, especially when, without our having occasioned, it leads us into spiritual darkness. This does not mean that we should wish to be abandoned by God in order to intensify our solidarity with our fellow men who are far from him. 
Nothing of that kind was in Paul's mind. But where tangible joy is withdrawn from us, we are right to hope that other hearts may light up because of our darkness. We are right to hope that other hearts may light up because of our darkness. This, as I told you, is a painting by Miriam Rose. It was painted for an Anglican church in Australia in 1979, I think. It's one of the stations of the cross. It's Jesus meeting his mother. And it's hard, I mean, it's impossible for me to say why I find it as moving as I do. Who's helping whom here? The cross makes the reach awkward. It's not a full embrace. The cross is too heavy. It's it's literally a stretch. But there's still a touch. And that touch is the way to glory. This microphone is for you to come and to um, pose your questions or offer your comment. Um, We'll just open the floor. I also want to invite, we have 60 or so folks who have joined us via the live stream. And if you all want to post your questions in the chat, uh, feel free free to do so as well. So uh, first of all, I'm just... I'm just really grateful that you're talking about this. I think it's uh, it's long overdue, and it's also very uh, it it can start healing for people who don't have an opportunity to talk about these kinds of things. And so, as you're you're talking, I'm I'm lighting my own candles, good, and thinking about these things, and. Uh, it's, I think it's, I think it's uh, at least one of my candles, and this is where I'm kind of thinking about tonight, is um, I'll never forget when my sister found out that she had uh, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. And she was processing her pain with her husband, and it, it caused him so much pain that she was saying, I don't know if I really... Um, I don't like to cause him pain by talking about where where I'm, you know, I'm in pain. And so we were driving down the road and um, I, my brain came back to this. And, um, and that is that uh, and I felt something like you were talking about there, but where um, I felt like the Lord kind of spoke to us in that moment. And I said to her, you know, I think that God is calling you to show people how Christians suffer. And she had, a, she had a blog at that time where she decided to blog all the way through to the end yeah. and uh, share her pain. And um, it's been life-giving to a lot of people. And just as yours is tonight, it was uh, refreshing in some kind of a really cool way to watch you uh, weep and to share your your pain and I think I think this is just healthy 
Yeah, it is. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Monaden. I, I appreciate that. And it's a, you're right, how Christians suffer. And just this, I mean, there's a caricature out there in the air, not entirely without reason at times, but that, that Pentecostal people, people of the spirit, charismatic people, don't have an account of suffering. But that, that's, that's untrue in at least three ways. It's, it's untrue historically. If you look at the history of, of Pentecostalism, it's a history of devotion to the wounds of Jesus. Walter Hollenweger, who's the first scholar to write a PhD about Pentecostal, global Pentecostalism, he identified classical Pentecostalism, which is what gives rise to the Assemblies of God and the Church of God and the Church of God in Christ, Pentecostal Holiness Church, which is where I was raised. He identified it as a form of blood and wound mysticism, a devotion to the friendship of Jesus centered in the communion table. That's our history. And sometimes we lose that history, but that's who we are. Secondly, just be around some folks in Pentecostal churches and listen and there you'll hear. You'll hear stories like stories of Daniel's sister or stories like Jeremy Sims that he has to tell and so on and so on. My story. But the third thing is the Spirit, and Alma Doring said this in her sermon, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a, is a baptism into suffering. Not that God wants you to suffer, but God wants to be with those who are suffering. And he won't be anywhere else. And when his Spirit is in you and on you, you can't end up anywhere else. Even if you're personally not coming apart, you'll end up just like Daniel did. You'll end up in the car on the road with people who are suffering. You can't not. So if you're not bearing the cross, you're going to be reaching out to the person who is. That's what the Spirit does. So Chris, um, <clears throat> I have a story to tell, but it might, it might involve more vulnerability than transparency. <laughs> give your categories earlier, but um, if you could address a bit about kind of the risk of suffering with and um, kind of this, not just the trauma, but the secondhand trauma that you experience when you're with those who are traumatized and theologically yeah. what that means and ministerially what we might, how we might respond. You know, I think this is, at least at this stage, and as I told you, I've been thinking about it for a long time, but I'm just starting. It, it seems to be even harder to think well about how do you care for those who are suffering without getting entangled in it yourself, but also without distancing yourself from them in ways that just leave them to their suffering. I don't, I don't think it's an accident, right, Daniel, what you said, like the... Some of the pain, and I would say this is true for me, for sure. Some of the pain you feel when your life is overwhelmed is the pain of realizing you're overwhelming people you love. And when those people are your spouse and your kids or your parents, I mean, my God, what do you do with that? I don't have good answers to it. I, I do think Jesus knows both what it's like to be the one suffering and the one to be suffering with He's inside that experience. 
And all I can think is this is why we have to have a network, like a, a true fabric of community in which if I'm suffering and you're bearing my weight, but then it gets to be too much for you, there's someone who can bear the weight for you, that this, there has to be a way in which it's shared across the whole body of, uh, of Christ. And I, I will say too, though, I think Nowen's point, Nowen's points are worth revisiting. Don't live with others in such a way that you create needs in them. Like try to, if you're going to suffer with, or you're going to co-suffer, if you're suffering and you're the one who's in pain, or you're suffering because someone you love is in pain, either way, don't create needs that shouldn't be there. And if pray that God will show you that that's happening and find ways to break it. I would say that would be now one's advice. The second one is, I think cleanness is everything. You've got to know when, the difference between wounds and infected wounds. When is our relationship as giver and taker of care, when is it starting to get unclean in some way, where there's infection starting to happen? And we have to be so discerning. And this is where I think sensitivity has to come in, like a, a sensitivity of spirit. Like something here doesn't feel quite clean enough. And... I don't know what does that if it's, not, if it's not tears. I was talking with some friends just recently about trauma. And I heard myself say, the only people it's safe to be with, safe to be vulnerable with, are people who've been cleansed by their own tears. I think that's, that's key. And if you get to a place, less, I'm saying more. I think this is true. There are times in which you're loving somebody and you cry out like you have no tears left. That probably means you need some distance. As long as the tears are still flowing, you're probably all right to be present. When you're not able to cry anymore, you need to hand it off to somebody else. And if you can't hand it off, maybe you've got a Messiah complex. Uh, there was a, um, a question that came in from the live stream. Well, there was a, a thank you for the lecture, um, but if you could elaborate on or maybe reword a bit what it means to carry our own cross. Like, you know, we've heard that all yeah. our lives. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you, it, yeah. It becomes a bit cliche. It does. So I think, I think what Doreen is doing, she gives a couple examples. She gives the one of the loneliness, which I think is, is remarkable. She gives another one later in the sermon about a night in which she gets lost in this town and can't find a place to stay. And in, someone finds her, and she ends up in this, in this home with this person who's found her in the alley and ministers to her. Like, feels like that God had set her up to be there to care for this person. And that's more involved. But if we stick with the loneliness example, I think what she's saying, and again, I think she's just resourcing the, the broader tradition, that your, your cross is whatever in your life is causing you pain. Right, so when we're talking about bearing a cross, the first thing we just mean is something that's killing you. Something that's killing you. Something that's killing your flesh. What she's arguing is that we have to live with that in such a way that it directs us to God. 
And the way we do that is we glory in Christ's cross. We trust that somehow what I'm suffering here that's killing me is tied in a way I don't understand to what Jesus suffered, which gives me life. So I have to get into his woundedness and know that somehow that's related to my woundedness, but I, I don't know how it is. And when I do that, when I finally, her argument is, and I think she's right, when I finally get in touch with his woundedness, it does something to what I'm experiencing. And it changes it. So like in her example, she's lonely until she realizes that that's her chance to be alone with Jesus. That what's given to her here is, is she can turn it. And what I, what I love about it is that it gives her agency. She does not say loneliness is good for me. She does not say I needed to be disciplined and be given loneliness. That would be a mistake. What she says instead is I'm not alone. Jesus wanted lonely time with me. And that's, that's a transfiguration, right? That's a shift of perspective that gives her agency. That's whatever, that's the transition that has to happen. So the loneliness is my cross. The intimacy with Jesus is his cross changing it. And so what she says is, you know, I stayed with God long enough until it wasn't a cross anymore. Now, again, you can't just easily stretch that out over everybody's experience in every situation. No, nothing works like that. But there is a, a wisdom there, I think, to say whatever I'm experiencing, it can be taken to Jesus. And how much time it takes, how he works it in my life. But reflecting on his suffering and his woundedness, I think that's, that's where the transfiguration starts to happen. Another, another question uh, coming in from the live stream. Given that the Gospels, this is a little long, given that the Gospels and the whole of Scriptures are the personal presence of the Word, Jesus Christ, in the Gospels, we get a constant picture of Jesus as the one who, quote-unquote, heals them all. We don't get many, or maybe any, pictures of Jesus as the silent presence to the traumatized. How do we follow Jesus in that way? How do we learn when, when to be silent and not be, quote-unquote, clanging symbols? He, he offers, um, one picture comes to mind, Jesus and the widow of Nain. She lost every male in her family, and Jesus says to her, stop weeping, and raises up her son. Uh, how do we follow Jesus in both his healing and his sufferings without seeing them as intention or something we have to balance? Yeah, they're definitely not intention. They don't need to be balanced. Like, you, you love, and sometimes love looks like speaking up, and a lot of times it looks like quieting down. I think, I think there's more to the Gospels than that. I, 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 would, I wouldn't read the Gospels that way, but I, I, I take the point. It's interesting to me, Oliver McMahon, who was a colleague of mine when I was at the Pentecostal Theological Seminary, he would often point out in Matthew 25, when Jesus is talking about the, the sheep and the goats and what separates those who know Christ from those who do not, is what they did to those who were sick and in prison naked, hungry, and strangers. And he's, Oliver points out, Dr. McMahon is a, a psychologist and professor of psychology. He points out, as well as a pastor, that Jesus does not say, I was sick and you healed me. 
He says, I was sick and you visited me. You came to me. And he said, he, he points out that, that, of course, we believe in healing. But what marks us as people of Christ is that we remain with people no matter what. Like coming to people and healing them and then moving on with your life. That doesn't look like Christ at all. Coming to people and staying with them, whether they're healed or not. Right. So Paul says, you know, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. When you live with people long enough, you realize that all of those, both of those things are happening with everyone all the time. Even when something is going great in your life and you're, you're laughing and dancing, another part of your life requires weeping. And to be brothers and sisters and walking with each other is to always be both weeping and laughing, dancing and mourning all the way to the end. And so I, I think... We want to be able to be, like, don't be Job's friends. Yeah, that's good advice. But also, I, I don't think we should be afraid of sharing what we can share, right? So I, I think, again, what we want here is integration. Not, and whoever asked the question knows that I'm going to avoid balance language. Um, push toward integration. Yes. Thanks for the question. On Tuesday in our lived theology class, I think I have some folks here. <laughs> one of the questions that came up that we had a class discussion about is a very common question of theodicy. So not only is why is there suffering in the yeah. world? Why do bad things happen to good people, etc.? But the question was also posed toward God. Yeah. Why? Does God not just snap God's anthropomorphic fingers <laughs> and allow all suffering to end and everyone is in perfection or without suffering? This, I'm going to give you an answer that's not going to be satisfying because it would take, I mean, Lauren, you and I will have the chance to talk about this. Maybe your students, you can follow up with them. God is undoing suffering. So one of the problems with the theodicy question is that God is not through being God yet. We're interrupting God mid-sentence. Like right now, there is suffering. In my past, there is suffering. But my past is not past to God. My past is as open to God as my future is. What has happened to me is over for me, but it's not over for God. And what we have, the hope of resurrection the hope of last judgment, the hope of the coming of God, is that, in the, in the words of Tolkien, all sad things are going to come untrue. What I'm arguing, and I think the Christian tradition argues, is not that we needed suffering. I mean, so one of the early theodicy arguments is you need suffering to learn what to be thankful for. Right? You need the contrast in order to learn. I don't think that's true. We live in a world of contrast, and so we learn by contrast. But I don't think we, God doesn't need that. God doesn't need anything. But this is the world we have. And for God to act upon it in ways that are true to us without violence, without imposing, is for God to do what's best for every creature altogether, including creatures like time and space. Something about me being me requires not just you, my parents and their parents and all of that, not just this world, it's oxygen and the trees, all of that, but also time. 
And God's work on my life is inseparable from God's work in your lives, God's work in the trees, God's work in time. And I mean, that's a little beyond my pay grade. How does he do all that? But here's what, I'm, here's what I absolutely believe scripture is saying. When God is done, there won't be the world we've known. There won't be the evil we've known. The world will be, not the world as we've known it. There won't be evil. When God is done, it, all of that will be undone. So I think providence does three things. Providence does three things. It heals the poison well, brings water from a rock, and turns water to wine. And everything that's happened in history, every horrible, horrible thing that's happened to every single person will be made right. Not explained, changed. Water from a rock, water to wine, or healing a poisoned well. So once we're there, that won't be the question anymore. All right, one last question, um, and we'll wrap it up for the night. Is it possible, uh, again, this is from the live stream, is it possible to come to a point of healing that we no longer are triggered from past abuse when someone behaves similar to previous abusers? Or are we meant to learn uh, regulation for the rest of our lives? It's absolutely possible. It depends, everything depends upon what Jesus is asking of you. And that depends on your calling. That depends on your place. And I think it's different person to person. I think there are some people in my life that forgiveness, forgiveness of them means putting them in my past where they're with the Lord until God makes all things right. There are other people that I will forgive and remain with. And Jesus decides that, right? I, I have to be following him as best I can with who those people are. I, I absolutely believe that it is possible to repair and restore. I don't think it happens quickly. I don't think it, it happens at the same, in the same way or at the same speed for, any, for any, any of us. I mean, for instance, even in our own lives, you can have a wound in your life that you recover relatively quickly from and then a seemingly lesser wound that you don't recover as quickly from. Like, this stuff is deeply complex and deeply mysterious, and I don't want to say anything too cheap about it. But what I do want to underscore is I do believe agency is possible. I mean, think about what Nick Cave says. Like, you have the right to be a mess, but don't be a mess too long. The world needs you. <laughs>